Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. The Gospel of John, chapter 11, verse 25. New Living Translation. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. The Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, New Living Translation. Yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 5, New Living Translation. Hi, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books, and part-time event planning consultant. He rearranges the chairs in the conference room when we have our meetings. Today on Anchored by Truth, as we approach Christmas, we want to continue our series where we focus on the life and ministry of Jesus. And we want to continue listening to Crystal Sea's epic Christmas poem, The Golden Tree, Komari's Quest. Today, we're coming to part five out of six parts of the poem. So we're getting close to bringing it home, right, R.D.? We are indeed. Now, for any listeners who haven't been able to be with us in our last few episodes, I'd like them to know that The Golden Tree, Komari's Quest is a poem that's written in the style of some of the old-time classic Christmas stories. It's written in six parts, and each part ends in sort of a cliffhanger. So now that we're at part five, we're pretty deep into the story. But just as a quick refresher for anyone who hasn't been able to be with us for every episode, the Golden Tree Komari's Quest is all about a group of small koala bears who live in the Arctic. But even though they live in the Arctic, they live in a valley that's green and warm because in the middle of their valley is a golden tree. And that golden tree provides enough light and warmth that it keeps the valley warm and fertile. So they've been there for several generations. But just as this particular Christmas season starts approaching, a demon lord and his horde have come into the bear's town, telling them that they've come there basically to take the tree. Of course, the bears are ready to fight for their tree. But when we left off the last time, we heard that the tree's special guardian, a small bear named Komari, has a different proposition for the demon lord. So we're going to pick it up right there. Sounds like we're getting to the good part. So let's continue with the story. Here's part five of Crystal Sea's epic Christmas poem, The Golden Tree, Komari's Quest. You and I in a test of strength, to the victor goes the tree. Have you the courage, most cowardly one? To fight and strive with me? Tiny, puny koala! 
your words are utter folly. I am the lord of the demon hordes, my power beyond belief. I raise my hand and millions bow. My visage is frightful to see, and you would place only yourself between my plans and the tree? I accept your challenge and grant you a boon. My present to you this year. You may choose the means of your death. What weapons we will bear. Swords, Demon Lord. Swords I choose. Let swords be the means to the end. Yours you carry. Mine you can't see. But it's a sword too mighty to bend. And since it's the season, a present I give. You may take the first blow. Strike me now, if you can, and leave me in the snow. Nay, cried the bears as if of one voice. We will not permit it to be. You are the guardian. It is true. We all belong to the tree. Exactly, my friends. That is the truth. So even now I fight not alone. Though this is the body the demon lord strikes, this body isn't truly my own. For if not for the tree, which of us would ever have even been born? The tree saved our forebears when they came upon it that morn. Ever since then we've not been our own, our lives bought for a price. This tree that was sown for you and me was the great white bear's sacrifice. So if I am slain for this good cause, it's a light burden to wear. Your lives it preserves and confirms our faith, and I'll have a gift so rare. For I'll die knowing I was true to the end, and my victory is complete. For I know that which the demons do not, that life's not the fruit most sweet. I also know that we're not alone, that another fights by our side, that his arm can only strike if we lay our own power aside. Enough of this banter, roared the fierce beast. I'll no longer be denied. I've accepted your terms. I'll take your gift. My sword aches for your hide. Strike then, demon, for these words are my sword. Your first blow will be your last. Make it sure and make it hard, for with it, your time is past. The demon lord roared and stepped in front minions brought straight from hell. He sensed his triumph and laughed with glee and sounded Komari's death knell. He raised his sword an awful blade inscribed with the runes of the dead. His flashing eyes seethed with fire and the sword paused above his head. 
Kumari looked into death come near. For a moment, fear passed her eyes. But she stood rock still and never turned and awaited her certain demise. Bright the blade, flashing with fire. Horrid the demon's loud cackles. The air round master beast and horde with hatred and bitterness crackles. Then fell the blow. The sword cut the air and cast a hate-filled shriek. And time paused as steel and faith moved swiftly each other to seek. Okay, so this part doesn't end with a cliffhanging. It ends with a sword falling. So the question is, what happens? And knowing you, the answer is to tune in next time. Or listeners can grab a copy of The Golden Tree from Amazon for themselves. Sounds even better. And they can listen to it whenever they want. In fact, listening to Golden Tree as a family could be a great way for parents or grandparents to connect with their kids and help them develop their faith. It would also make a great centerpiece for a homeschool study group or church youth group discussion about the role that courage and commitment play in the Christian faith, something that's particularly relevant as we get closer and closer to Christmas. Right. Someone once said that the Christian faith is so simple that even children can comprehend enough about the plan of salvation in order to be able to understand it. But even though we can begin our Christian faith with the faith of a child, we should always pursue the goal of developing a truly mature Christian faith. Now, of course, God is going to meet us and help us wherever we are in our faith journey. But God isn't satisfied just to leave us at the starting line of faith. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus doesn't just initiate our faith, he also wants to truly perfect it. And part of perfecting our faith is ensuring that we understand all that the Bible tells us about Jesus. Well, so far, we've seen that there are extra biblical sources that confirm that Jesus was a real historical figure who lived and died in Judea during the time period described by the Bible. But we've also seen that as helpful as it is to know that there are secular sources that confirm Jesus' life, that those sources aren't enough to tell us everything that we need to know about Jesus. We can only get a complete revelation about Jesus from God's special revelation to people, the Bible. And as we saw in our last episode, and again in today's scriptures, Jesus' statements about himself tell us something pretty important, that Jesus is not only fully human, but also fully divine. Yes. And so that takes us on to the next subject that we need to talk about as we are focusing on the life of Jesus in preparation for celebrating his birth at Christmas. And that is? And that is that because Jesus is the central figure, not just of Christianity, but of course also of the entire Bible, that sometimes criticisms are aimed at Jesus. And one of the criticisms that's often directed towards him is that the attributes that the Bible assigns to Jesus were borrowed from another culture or another religious source. So Christians need to be familiar with some of the assertions about Jesus, especially about his miracles, because it's often alleged that Jesus' miracles and his life was just a copycat of another religious myth or some other pagan character. Can you give us an example of what you're thinking about? Sure. For instance, it's been alleged that Jesus' miraculous conception isn't a unique belief. 
Critics will sometimes say that other so-called mythological figures, such as Hercules, were also the son of a divine father and mortal mother. Now, in the specific case of Hercules, Hercules was supposed to be the son of the king of the gods, in this case Zeus, and a mortal mother. But, of course, there are significant differences between Hercules' purported conception and Jesus. In the Greek legend, Hercules' mother was named Alcmene. Zeus was supposed to have taken on human form of Alcmene's husband and deceived Alcmene and slept with her. And that's how Hercules was conceived. That's not nearly the same thing as Jesus being born of Mary, while Mary was literally still a virgin. Well, the differences are even more pronounced. Hercules was actually the Roman name of a Greek hero named Heracles. Well, according to the Greek legend, Heracles' mother, Alcmene, was simultaneously pregnant with Heracles by Zeus and his half-brother, Iphicles, by Alcmene's husband. And that's only the beginning of the legendary aspects. So as soon as you get beyond the superficial similarity and look at the details, the notion that Jesus' conception was somehow an adaptation of the Heracles-Hercules myth falls apart pretty quickly. But this is a good example of one kind of obviously fallacious attack that's directed against the historicity of Jesus. So what you're saying is that one form of attack that's leveled at Jesus has to do with a particular attribute of Jesus and then trying to find a parallel somewhere else in a different religion that is obviously false. The critics then try to discredit the life of Jesus by saying that if story A is false, then story B must be false also. Right. But that makes about as much sense as saying that if there are two $5 bills on the counter and one is counterfeit, the other must be counterfeit also, and that's just plain silly. Of course, you could have one counterfeit bill and one true bill, and I'd certainly want to pick up the real $5 bill. So sometimes, the supposedly pagan origin of the details of Jesus' earthly life and ministry are concerned with specific attributes that are fairly unique to Jesus, such as his virgin birth. But sometimes the copycat thesis is less concerned with the specifics of Jesus' life and more concerned with what you might call generalities that might be associated with just about any supernatural figure. Again, do you have any specific examples in mind? Well, for instance, since sickness and disease are obviously a plague on human existence... No pun intended. No pun intended. Well, anyway... The ability to bring miraculous healing would be expected to be a staple of myths or legends, and it is. For example, Asclepius was a Greek demigod who was the god of medicine. He was supposed to have raised Hippolytus from the dead, although he was killed by Zeus for doing so. Asclepius was supposed to be the son of the god Apollo and a human mother. Another example of a religious figure to whom the ability to heal people miraculously was ascribed is Buddha. Buddha was also supposed to have been able to cure the sick. But again, those kinds of general miracle workings of mythological characters vary considerably from the information we have about the miracles that Jesus performed. For instance, in the case of Jesus curing Peter's mother, we have precise details of the location where the miracle was done the people involved, and even a pretty close approximation to the timing. And many of Jesus' healings involve specific details that conform to the religious and cultural conventions known to exist, such as when he healed the lepers and then told them to go show themselves to a priest, which was required by Jewish law. 
and Jesus' healing miracles weren't always the cause for celebration the way you would expect of a miracle, like when Jesus restored the eyesight of the man born blind. The blind man was rejected by the religious leaders and cast out by them. Exactly. The descriptions of Jesus' miracles read like historical accounts because they are. Again, the key to drawing distinctions between Jesus' miracles and these general sorts of miraculous powers that are associated with pagan sources is in the details. The distinction is in the details. The Bible accounts provide the details, and in the majority of the cases of Jesus' miracles, there are multiple eyewitness accounts of the miracles. But the case of Buddha provides another way of refuting the claims that the Bible's descriptions of Jesus are drawn from other sources. The earliest known account of Buddha's life was written in the 2nd century AD, so the accounts of Buddha came after Jesus, not before him. And that's also true of another supposed religious figure who was supposed to have served as the source for many of the details of Christ's life, Mithra. In Mithra's manifestation during the Roman period, Mithra was supposed to have been born on December 25th, had 12 disciples, and performed miracles, had a final meal before he died, and rose from the grave. And since Mithra was a religious figure that was known to come from the Persian culture, modern-day Iran, supposedly he was the inspiration for much of what the disciples taught about Jesus, right? Right. The earliest mention of Mithra is around 1400 B.C., so as a religious figure, Mithra would predate Christ by a considerable margin. But the problem is that the attributes of the Iranian version of Mithra do not correspond to the attributes of the Roman version of Mithra. The Roman version of Mithra, for instance, is best known for slaying a bull. But in the Iranian version of Mithra, there's no known connection to bull slaying. And a lot of the supposed correspondences between Christ and Mithra appear in the Roman descriptions of Mithra after the date of Christ. So many scholars believe there might have been some cross-pollination between Christ and the Roman version of Mithra But given the timing of the appearance of the similarities, it's far more likely that the legends of Mithra borrowed from Christianity and not vice versa. Yeah, and in an odd way, that would have been fair, because there is one way that Christianity did borrow from Mithraism, and that's in art. In the early part of the 3rd century AD, 313 AD to be precise, the Roman Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which accepted Christianity within the Roman Empire. Before Constantine, the Roman emperors had generally been very hostile to Christians. Well, within about 10 years after the Edict of Milan, Christianity had become the official religion of the Roman Empire. Well, by then, Mithraism also seems to have gained a strong foothold within the empire. So, in the 3rd and the 4th centuries AD, the Roman Christian Church was in a bit of competition with Mithraism. So the Roman church officials who appear to have embarked on a bit of an effort to prove that their faith was the superior ones. And so they sort of embarked on an advertising campaign, and one commentator said that the Roman church officials were reminiscent of our soft drink wars. For instance, in art, Mithra was depicted as slaying a bull while riding its back. So the church did a look-alike scene with Samson killing a lion. Mithra sent arrows into a rock to bring forth water. So the church changed that into Moses getting water from the rock at Horeb. In their creation and depiction of Christian art, the Roman church officials in the 3rd and 4th century appear to have been engaged in an art kind of contest, but they were drawing the inspiration for much of their art, or at least for part of their art, from Mithraism. 
So it appears that in certain aspects of art, the church may have borrowed from Mithraism, but the church certainly did not borrow any of the specific attributes or performance of Jesus' miracles from Mithraism. That sounds suspiciously like the law of unintended consequences. The church officials in the 3rd and 4th century went on a campaign to prove that Christianity was superior to Mithraism and 1,600 years later, the church now has to defend itself against the claim that Jesus' life and ministry were the copycat version. And I think that's an excellent observation. Well, let's close out with one more quick example. In Hinduism, Krishna was supposed to have had a miraculous conception also, so some critics point to that legend as a possible inspiration for the Christian tenet of the miraculous conception. But in that case, Krishna's miraculous conception is his mom being impregnated by mental transmission from his completely human father. Again, not remotely similar to the Bible's description of how Mary became pregnant. And to add to that, how credible would it be that the first Christians, who were largely Jews from Palestine, would have borrowed a legend from a thousand miles away in order to inspire some kind of a pious fraud, some kind of a fictional description of a hero that they were trying to create. At a minimum, the Jews were fiercely monotheistic, whereas Hinduism is distinctly polytheistic. So again, this points out the need to examine not only the varying details between the alleged instances of borrowing, but also to consider the other factors that would have been in play in that kind of an activity. And often, either chronological or cultural factors alone will be enough to refute the alleged possibility that descriptions of Christ and his miracles borrowed from some other religious source or some other pagan tradition. So to go back to our earlier example with money, when new bank tellers are being taught to spot counterfeit dollars, they aren't given lots of counterfeits to study. They're given lots of real bills to feel and handle. The idea is quite simple. If tellers become so used to touching and handling the real bills, the real thing, the fakes will become instantly recognizable. Well, that same approach will work when it comes to being able to address many of the criticisms that are hurled at Christianity and Jesus. And that's a good lesson for all of us. The more time we spend studying scripture and developing familiarity with the details of the people, the nations, the geography, the culture, not only will we be able to be confident in our own faith, but we will also be able to point other people to the truth. Precisely. Descriptions of myths and legends read like myths and legends. They have fantastic details that have little or no correspondence to the things that we see and know about in the real world. Good common sense, though, enables us to quickly see that those elements don't make any sense in our experience. By contrast, the history contained in the Bible reads like good histories that we see elsewhere. There are specifics about people, places, times, and events, and quite often either archaeological finds or extra-biblical records will provide confirming information for what the biblical history describes. So if people will just become very familiar with the real details of the story of Jesus, particularly of his miracles and of his life and his death and his resurrection, if people will just become immersed in those details and become super familiar with them, then whenever someone says, well, the Christian tradition borrowed that from another culture or another pagan source, it'll become pretty obvious which one is true and which one is the manufactured fiction. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today, since we're so close to Christmas, 
Let's listen to a prayer about that special day. A Prayer for Christmas Day Wonderful Father, You are the Most High King who lives and reigns in unimaginable majesty and splendor. You superintend all creation and Your commands cannot be altered. You see the end from the beginning and are the only sure guide for Your children. Lord, today we celebrate the birth of the Christ child. Though he was born in the most humble of earthly circumstances, angelic heralds, the messengers of true sovereignty, announced his birth, thereby signifying his royal heritage and that this child would be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. By your command, Christ was called by many names and titles. Gabriel told Mary and Joseph, the child would be called Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. Through the prophet Isaiah, you proclaim the child would be called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. The child would become the Christ, which means the Anointed One. The baby would also be called the Son of David, because he would inherit the throne you had granted to the greatest King of Israel. When grown, the child would call himself the Son of Man, hearkening back to Daniel's vision of the One who came on clouds of glory to rule and reign. By these names and others, all who looked upon the child and the man, all who know him today, understand that this child is nothing less than the divine Son of the living God. In a way we cannot fathom, Christ Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and because he is, he is fully able to save all those who put their trust in him. Christ is God. The value of his sacrifice was therefore infinite. Christ is man. He can therefore represent all people who look to him to redeem them from the desperate plight of sin. Though at his birth the shepherds saw him in a manger, the truth was that at that moment the hosts of heaven still recognized their king. We glorify you, O Lord, for the manifest goodness that you gave to us. We fall down in worship and praise for so great a salvation, and we pray that his name and yours will be honored in our hearts and in hearts all over the world. We pray that you would help us to proclaim this glorious news, not only today, but every day. We pray that you would open hearts to receive the good news. Because Jesus is our Lord and Savior, we have the confidence to come before your throne and to pray in his grace-filled name. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics, so if they've missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all those episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time as we continue our discussion of the reality of Jesus' life. We hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also or listen to the podcast version of this show. Also, we'd like to remind listeners that copies of The Golden Tree, Kamari's Quest are available from our website or on Amazon. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're we're not famous, but our boss is.
Hi, I'm R.D. Fierro from the Anchored by Truth show that comes to you Tuesday mornings right here on Wave FM. We want to alert all the Wave FM listeners, starting in January, Anchored by Truth will be hosting a special series on the truth found in the book of Genesis. This series will feature Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, who is one of the world's leading experts on the scientific framework that establishes the truth of Genesis. Beginning in January on Tuesday mornings at 11.30, please join us on Anchored by Truth for this fascinating series. With Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, we will explore how astronomy, geology, and paleontology actually testify that God did indeed create the heavens and earth precisely as described in the opening chapters of Genesis. This series will even feature a special show just on dinosaurs. Did you know that soft tissue, including blood cells, blood vessels, and proteins like collagen, had been discovered in dinosaur fossils by Dr. Mary Schweitzer? According to Dr. Schweitzer, the laws of chemistry and biology say that such tissue should have degraded completely in less than a million years. She was so shocked that she rechecked her work 17 times. Well, what do the latest discoveries like those of Dr. Schweitzer tell us about the age of the earth and how can these discoveries change our understanding about the truth of Genesis? Join us right here on Anchored by Truth starting in January on Tuesday mornings at 11.30. Together we will find out that the world and universe contain some amazing evidence that the God who inspired the writing of Genesis has truly left His fingerprints on His creation.